After having marked song number 218, as Brother Harold has asked us to do, I might just take a moment, if I might, and make a small mention of one of the things that Brother Ted mentioned just a few moments ago, having to do with, again, that track track that's available. Uh, please have no fear if you happen to take all of the tracks in a particular one of those slots. The church has others that we will put in place once, uh, once a particular region has become vacant or empty. It was our, the desire of our elders to make supplication of those things and make them available to us. And if there's a particular one that's of interest to you, please avail yourself of that, read it, and hopefully share it with those who may be about you. We have others already that we will begin to put in place once, once certain regions or sectors of that tract rack have already become vacant or empty. As we put various ones in there, might take note that those that we already have ready to supply are different than the ones out there now, so always stop and take a look at that if you have an available time to do that, and you might find something new in the next go-round of tracks available that, that you may even find to have a different interest to you than what some of those out there, uh, in fact, would be now. With regard to our studies on the Sunday evenings now for some, some weeks, we have turned our attention to a discussion of the Bible on the one hand and science on the other. We have often reminded ourselves that our students and even we ourselves are encouraged to appreciate the endeavors and the discoveries of science, but all the while we have noted that sometimes the proclamations or at least the presentations of science seem to put the Bible in a rather unfavorable light. Specifically, sometimes there are those who have enough audacity to say that the Bible is merely a collection of fables, myths, and stories, and really it is anti-scientific to the core. I believe we have already learned enough to conclude that that statement is made more out of ignorance than anything else, for it is far from the truth. The Bible on many occasions proclaimed scientific truth millennia before, in fact, scientists came to discover it. In fact, some of the things we've noted along the way have been incredibly encouraging to us. And I chose to list just a few of those things just to pr proceed to pr get us going in the lesson tonight. We have looked throughout this series of lessons at what the science is and what the Bible is. Learning that the Bible is truth absolutely. John 17, verse number 17. We noted in the field of biology and in the field of geology and in the field of astronomy Many things that are in fact housed in the Word of God that were written by God's inspired penmen centuries, perhaps even more, before scientists learned those things. We then learned in physics and in chemistry, oceanography and meteorology, other truths that are to be found in the Word of God. And on more than one occasion, the scientific discoverers were prompted by the truths of the Bible to discover those things because they had a confidence that God's word was true. Most recently, we came to see about dinosaurs and the fact that though that word may not be found in the Bible, there is an indirect reference there and even two descriptions of these marvelous creatures helping us see that these were in fact the testimony of the Almighty God that he could do that and that he did make those creatures. Last week, we learned a bit about the human body we turned our attention to the brain on the one hand, to the heart on the other, and learned that these two marvelous devices, intricate and complex in their operation, are nonetheless exact features that testify that there had to be a designer for these things. They didn't just make themselves. 
I would ask that you proceed on a secondary journey to that effect tonight as we look at two more parts of the human body. As Brother Greg read from the book of Proverbs a few moments ago in Proverbs 20 verse 12, both of these aspects and features of the human body are mentioned, and well, let's take them in order. As we look, first of all, at the human eye, and then we'll turn our attention to the human ear. And I believe we'll be rather amazed before we're finished at the intricacy, the complexity, and the efficiency of these two parts of the human body. First of all, what about the human eye? As we study this thing tonight, of course, as has been in there our idea throughout the entirety of the series, it's our desire to see the very fingerprints of God in it and to appreciate that though this entity may be in our body and maybe we don't often even think about the way the eye works, tonight we shall at least address that basically. If Deanna were here tonight, her oldest daughter, she could say much more about the way the eye works. But our goal is just to gain some impression of how marvelous that given entity is. On this opening slide, I have begun with the very phrase, the amazing eye. In Psalm 139, verse 14, a text we have noted more than once in the series, the psalmist so beautifully and powerfully proclaimed, I will praise thee. Why? Because thy works are so marvelous. He, in fact, said, Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. As we contemplate this aspect of God's creation, the capability of the eye and the vision that it makes possible, could I ask you to begin by noting this quotation? I couldn't resist including it in the lesson tonight. And if you perhaps are able to read that from where you're sitting, I hope you'll take note of who the author of it is. Perhaps a bit of history would be in order. We will understand that there was a time when most thinking individuals on, on earth appreciated that the scriptures were in fact the testimony of all that was true and right. However, when Charles Darwin and Ernst Mayer and a few others, especially in the middle part of the 19th century, began to propose and set forth that which has since come to be known as organic evolution, it is to be noted that one of the things that troubled Darwin, Charles Darwin now, the man who wrote that book called On the Origin of Species, published in the latter part of the year in 1859. That book was a watershed event. Many began to conclude and jump on that bandwagon with great earnestness. And of course, since that time, it has come to be the accepted dogma, by and large, in the scientific community. However, I'd ask you to notice that one of the things that was an immediate troublesome point to Darwin was the eye. In fact, in light of that point, this is what Darwin said, and I quote, To suppose that the eye, with all its inimitable contrivances for adjusting the focus to different distances, for admitting different amounts of light, and for the correction of spherical and chromatic aberration, could have been formed by natural selection seems, I freely confess, absurd in the highest sense. You might notice, though the language is somewhat lofty, Darwin is basically saying, I freely confess to you that to propose that the eye could have been formed by natural selection without any overruling design and providence is absolutely absurd. 
And yet Darwin went on in the same book and said, I have no other explanation than to tell you that's how it must have happened. Isn't that ironic? For a person to appreciate the intricacy, the complexity, the functioning, and the absolute amazing character of the eye, and to admit that it seems highly unlikely and even absurd to think it could have happened without any design, while at the same time to confess that's the only way I think it could have happened, is to omit a vast part of the evidence. Wouldn't you conclude? In light of that point, might I ask you to think just briefly about a few of the things that your eye and mind can do. I think it only fair to say that as we begin this very brief discussion, I would ask you to pause and think of all of the things that must be happening in, that allows you vision and allows each of us to see. When you focus your eye upon that, for example, or to turn back to the Bible that may rest in your lap, the eye automatically adjusts the distance and the focus correctly. When you look from the Bible that's in your lap up here to the wall, your eye automatically adjusts its focus correctly so that the words appear resolved and not, and not in a way that's fuzzy or ambiguous. But that's only the beginning. For at once your eye has focused upon it, the right amount of light enters. Your pupil adjusts in diameter, allowing the right amount of light then to fall upon the retina that's located at the back of your eye. All the while as the light enters the eye, the cornea, in a majestic way, focuses that light and in a well-resolved way upon that, on, upon that retina. And that retina, as we shall see shortly, is one of the most fascinating parts of the human body, period. As the light falls upon that retina, notice again, by that point, it's well-resolved. And as the point should be noted, those receptors... And those particularly intricate things that comprise that retina are such that they're sensitive to that light. Be it colored or not, be it black and white, they are sensitive and can detect that distinction. And as they, in fact, fall upon the retina, they excite it. As those atoms in it are excited, chemical reactions take place. Those chemical reactions result in electric signals being passed over your optic nerve to your brain. The brain has learned from the time you were young to interpret those signals, to draw conclusions about what you're seeing. Is it an image? Is it writing? Is it something else that can perhaps lead to other emotions within the body? All of that's taking place and you don't have to think a thing about it. It happens automatically. However, once the signals arrive at the brain, arguably some of the most complex analysis methodologies in the entire human body take place. Because there, those light signals that have now been turned to electrical ones, in the brain they are now interpreted by firing certain portions of the brain, and the brain makes those images in perfect, seamless fashion. A bit more will come about that as the lesson ensues. But for now, might we already notice, we've hinted previously at the automatic character of the light that the eye adjusts. But notice something else that should be noted by way of a picture. I found this picture that I thought would be at least reasonable to include. It is a side view of the eye, and you can see that as the light enters the cornea, that's that very small covering over the eye, passing through the lens that focuses it properly, Notice that the light falls on the back of the eye 
And one of the most remarkable things, again, is that retina. As we shall see in just a moment, the retina is, in fact, a marvelous thing. And if you have that basic idea in mind, might I ask you to ponder the retina with me a little more carefully? Because that is where so much of the basic beauty of the eye takes place. With regard to that retina, it is exceedingly thin. It is less, in fact, than eight thousandths of an inch thick. Incredibly tiny, and yet it is filled with these photoreceptors. In fact, isn't it interesting that our president most recently has encouraged energy developments in our land, where light from the sun can be turned into other kinds of usable energy. To this point, mankind has not developed anything close to the technology that occurs in the back of your eye and mind. I've listed some other statistics for you, con for you to consider. Every square millimeter of your eye's retina contains approximately 400,000 photoreceptors. That is, these tiny things that are, in fact, excitable by light. They are, in fact, susceptible to the character of light and its intensity, and they, by virtue of the way they work and the chemical signals that they produce, allow you to see the intensity, the image, the things, the words, anything that the light, in fact, passes through your eye. It's those receptors that detect it. And it's those receptors that allow you to see that there's something there to be viewed. Notice something else about those optical sensors that make up that retina. And again, might I ask, let us keep in mind that these optical sensors are better than anything man has yet invented by far. As evidence of that point, consider this next statistic too, if you would. Those receptors in your eye are so marvelous in their operation that they are able to properly distinguish the intensity by a factor of 10 billion of the light that enters your eye. Now to say that differently, think of it this way. On a dark, dark night, if you allow your eye to adjust for a small amount of time, you still likely can see, can't you? In fact, scientists have learned that even if one photon passes through your eye, that's enough to excite those receptors and you will be able to at least detect something. But on the other hand, in a bright sunny afternoon when you're driving, say, in the direction westward and the sunlight's glaring off the road and penetrating through your eye, that light is over 10 billion times more intense and yet your eye can handle the difference. I might submit to you that the best camera that men have ever developed is able to function at a meager factor of a thousand in your eyes at a factor of ten billion. If it's the case, the camera had to be designed and it had to be built by some group of engineers, what should we now say about the eye? Is it thinkable that it could have come about by itself? I think not. Consider also the character that relates to the way the eye distinguishes the nature of the things it does see. In each one of your eyes, there's on the order of 130 million of these rods. Now these again are extremely tiny things that make up the retina and they are what allow you to see black and white. They allow you to see period in other words. But yet intermingled in amongst them are about 7 million cones and they allow you to detect color. 
These are sensitive to certain frequencies of light, and you perceive them as color. Now, clearly there are some folks, especially women, tend to be usually better at that than men. Men are typically more colorblind than women. Nonetheless, even we men are able to at least see differing shades of color. We're able to perceive the various intonations and shades, and my friend, this is a masterpiece of design. When you and I look upon something and perceive the color that's in it, I think now the question comes, how is it that those rods and those cones are excited in the way that they are and your brain perceives it as color or as, in fact, an image to be understood? Here, in fact, one would need to get deep to see it much further than all that I'm about to say about it. If you have an interest in reading much about it, a, a professor named Michael Behay wrote a book in the middle part of the 1990s in which he detailed in great sophistication the biochemical operation of the eye. It is something to read, I freely admit. And in that book, he in fact makes the following conclusion. He proves that the biochemical operations of the eye could not have evolved, period. Again, I'll leave it at that, but ask you to note the biochemistry of the eye is to this day a fascinating wonder, such that evolutionists still have no answer for it, still have no way of appreciating how evolution could have led to it by itself. I state that fact so that one final thing perhaps ought to be noted. I mentioned a, a bit earlier in the lesson tonight how that, notice, we each have two eyes, and as the light passes through the two eyes on the, each one of the retinas, somehow the optic nerve of each eye transmits that to the brain. And perhaps as we've often learned, things from the left side of your body end up on the right side of the brain and vice versa. The same thing's true of the eye. The images from one eye go to one part of the brain, from the other eye goes to the other one, and yet somehow your brain seamlessly puts the information from the separate parts of the brain together to make one perfectly resolved, clear image. I wonder how that happens. It's unthinkable that that happened by accident. The complexity of the brain as it works with the eye leads me to make a few conclusions from the Bible. As we contemplate how the eye is mentioned in the Word of God, these thoughts, it seems, so rapidly raced to our mind. We read from Proverbs 20, verse number 12 earlier, The seeing eye and the hearing ear, even the Lord hath made both of them. They didn't come about by accident. The eye that you and I appreciate so marvelously and so wondrously that allows us to appreciate vision, and that, quite frankly, is such that roughly 80% of the information that enters our body enters through the eye. God fashioned that eye. And isn't it amazing to look at some of the ways the word eye is used in the Bible? The King James translation has the word eye or some form of it 636 times. It's clear, isn't it, that there is a significant mention of the eye and the significance of that mention leads each of us, I think, to appreciate often the way in which that's mentioned. It's true that some passages refer to the mere usage of the eye to, in fact, see where one's going. But quite often, the mentions of it are far more interesting in that they refer to one's understanding. 
Didn't Paul make reference in Ephesians 1.18 that he prayed for the Ephesians that the eyes of your understanding would be enlightened? Didn't Jesus utter in the gospel accounts the fact that if the eye be single, the whole body is in darkness? Reminding all of us that we have the opportunity to be very careful of the information in many instances that enters our eye. We don't need to look upon that which is ugly quite often. We have a choice to look upon that which is far more wholesome and good. And we ought to certainly take great care as to how we employ that blessed gift of vision. Do we look upon things that we shouldn't? Do we allow that to then implement and lead to our mind resting upon that which is in fact sinful and unwholesome and which tarnishes us as a person? We should be very careful as to what information, if we have control over it, that we allow to enter into our eyes. We teach our children, do we not, that little song, little eyes, be careful what you see. As we then, as, as those who are older, we too can be very careful about that. Reading those things that are far more wholesome and noble and sound and good, focusing maybe on reading more of the Bible, and less of the trash that the world has to offer. To open the Word of God and allow our eyes to rest upon the truth that's found therein, and far less often, when we have the opportunity at least, to read those things that men have written, and that so often are far less than noble, far less than wholesome, far less than that which encourages godliness in life. I've listed a few other passages that I would ask you to consider. In 1 John 2, verse, verses 15 and 16, John reminded us there about the lusts of the eyes. Our world is often filled with things that encourage lustfulness. People basically walk around mostly naked. Quite often individuals, in fact, behave themselves in fashions that are really rather vulgar. As we appreciate then, when we do have that opportunity, wouldn't we be far more pleasing to God, and isn't it what He demands, that we in fact allow that which to enter our eyes, that is, that which is good, that which He finds acceptable, approved, and pleasing. Be careful, little eyes, what you see. God has made those eyes that we have. May we be thankful for the opportunity to see, and when we have appreciation then to speak with someone whose vision is failing, don't they often make a remark as to how I wish I could see again? Maybe you and I can appreciate even better now what a great blessing vision really is. To be able to see clearly, to be able to in fact allow information to enter our brain and our life by virtue of that window to the brain that might well be described as the human eye. This discussion of the eye has been obviously very brief, but nonetheless I think the very mention of it so often in the Bible is an encouragement to us to appreciate how seriously God takes our usage of the eye. But there was another instrument of the human body mentioned in that same text read earlier tonight. What about the ear? Let's also turn our attention to the ear and at least make a few remarks about its operation. And I believe when we're finished, we will have reached about an amazing conclusion, as much so as we did with respect to the human eye that we just finished. With regard to the ear, I chose to begin it with the same observation, the amazing ear. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. 
marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. That 14th verse of, again, Psalm 139. Just as surely as we used a quotation from Charles Darwin a bit earlier, I thought we would begin with another quotation with respect to the human ear. This one is from a gentleman whose last name is Whiteside, and the book out of which I took it is A Brief Journey Through the Ear, published only now about three years ago, 2006. This is the quotation. The human ear is a rather wondrous instrument. It is composed of tens of thousands of component parts, can work, quote, flawlessly from well before we are born to more than a century of age, and is capable of performing extremely sophisticated auditory tasks, and it works 24 hours a day. As Mr. Whitehead made that comment, again taken verbatim from that, from that book in which, in which he wrote that, I might ask us to at least ponder a little bit about the scientific facts related to the working of the human ear. Much of that, which again we can readily share, will be obviously brief and somewhat cursory in character. But nonetheless, I think it'll still be amazing and still be truly remarkable in what it'll help us appreciate. It's a bit interesting to notice that in in, as far as the physics and the science of the human ear, that's relatively recent. Only with the sophistication of computers and other things like that has a careful study of the frequency range of the ear been able to be made. In light of all that, I would ask you to appreciate one of those words that Mr. Whitehead used. He said that the ear is truly a masterpiece that's composed of thousands of parts that work together. Did you think that your ear had that many parts in it that allowed it to work the way it does? Would we have perhaps imagined that the ear would be that intricate and that complex? And yet, all the while, that's exactly the case. Here's a picture of the major features of your ear. As you notice, as sound waves travel in through that auricle on the outside, passing through that auditory canal, you'll quickly notice that inside the ear are the smallest bones in the human body incredibly tiny by character or, or comparison to most of the bones in the body. And yet those bones work together in conjunction with the eardrum and a host of many other things that allow you to hear a remarkable range of things. As you'll notice in that, there is in fact a circular or in fact a, a very interesting shaped thing. And I might add that scientists have often noted the amazing feature of that cochlea, for it allows sound to be magnified to the point you can hear it. Perhaps as an emphasis upon some of those features, could I ask you to notice some of the scientific facts about the ear, and we will refer back to that picture at the opportune times in our discussion. But as far as the intensity, much of the same thing could be said reasonably so with respect to the ear as it was with respect to the eye. Remember we said you can almost see in very dark conditions, but you can also see in very bright conditions. Consider this with me. Your ear is designed by God in such a way that you can hear things that are very, very faint. But on the other hand, you can stand next to a jet engine and still be able to hear. The ear is automatically designed in a way 
that it allows you to interpret and to hear sounds that are low in intensity. But when the sounds reach a certain threshold, God has designed an internal mechanism that dampens or restricts the intensity so it doesn't burst your eardrum or do other internal damage. Isn't it interesting? Scientists today often employ safeguard techniques. Your ear is automatically built in with one. But not only intensity. I listed for you the number that in fact makes the note of the frequency, or I'm sorry, the intensity ratio. I stated that very loud sounds can be heard and also exceedingly faint ones. Scientists have well measured that the factor between the very loud ones and the very faint ones is over a trillion in terms of intensity. We noted the eye was amazing a moment ago with a factor of 10 billion. The ear's frequency or the ear's intensity ratio is 100 times greater. I submit to you that is truly amazing. There is no auditory instrument that scientists have been able to develop that comes close to that range. Nothing even close. To talk that much, however, about intensity leads us to at least mention the frequency. Tonight, we lifted up our voice in singing. And when we do so, music, in fact, is a marvelously mathematical thing. One can speak about octaves, and one can speak about harmonics. And your ear can detect, at least for most people, a frequency that's right or one that's not. There are very few people that are fully and completely tone deaf. That circuitry and that means of mechanically measuring frequency is a part of the way your ear works. We can detect frequencies. We know when pitches are low and when pitches are high. We can in fact sing the scale do, re, mi, fa, so, la, ti, do. We can do all of that because of the way God has designed the ear. To speak about that frequency, I ask you to appreciate that the frequency range that the ear can span is about a factor of a thousand. Earlier we became impressed, I think, with the eye. The frequency range that our eye can detect is far less than a thousand. Notice the way God designed the ear. A full range of a thousand in frequency. The eardrum vibrations, in fact, that take place in your ear. And I remember myself being amazed when I first learned about this. That eardrum, when sound waves fall upon it, your eardrum vibrates. And by the mechanism of that cochlea, it is amplified to the point that you can appreciate the sound and the audible nature of it. But notice, with faint enough sounds, your eardrum may vibrate with an amplitude, as I have stated for you there, that's one billionth of an inch. One billionth of an inch. I would ask any scientist in the world to design something that can be detected at the ratio of vibrating at an amplitude of a billionth of an inch. And yet your ear does it. That, my friend, is absolutely remarkable. How can it be that the, work, the working of the ear can take a vibration that small, amplify it to the point you can interpret it, and you can furthermore even detect by virtue of two ears where a sound is coming from and what its origin might be. To say all of that is to notice that some of the smallest of the muscles and bones in the whole body are to be found in the human ear. And as that ear operates, the fascination of it has mesmerized auditory scientists now for a little over a century. With the advent of the computer, even more has now been learned about it. 
one of the last comments that I thought would be worthy of being stated is perhaps a word that's rather unfamiliar to you. But if you study higher mathematics, you will encounter a kind of analysis known as Fourier analysis. I might submit to you that only in recent years have scientists learned how to program a computer to do this, and yet your ear does it automatically. You see, Fourier analysis is a, just a fancy way of describing the identification of frequencies, those pitches I mentioned earlier. Your ear has the capability of hearing something. It translates it into frequencies automatically. Your brain interprets them. That's nothing but Fourier analysis. Scientists didn't learn about that and able to program a computer to do it until only in recent years. May I ask, if it took scientists to program a computer that even performed that operation, can it be possibly thought that the ear somehow developed the capability to do this by itself? That it did it with blind consideration? I would submit that's absurdity in the highest sense. If it took a person to design the computer, it took something or someone to design the ear. And we know from Proverbs 20 verse 12 that someone was God. God designed the intricacy of the ear, and he did so with the amazing features that men are still learning things about it and are able to use it in productive ways to help humanity, like in designing better hearing aids and designing other means that help individuals learn better by virtue of hearing. These things perhaps lead us to see that a few more comments about the ear might be in order, at least from the perspective of how the Bible describes it. I mentioned earlier how often that the eye is referenced in the Bible and similarly the ear is frequently referenced as well. In Proverbs 20 verse 12 we learn who made that ear. It was God. The fashion and the physics and the mathematics that goes into its operation are still remarkable even till this day. And in that discussion perhaps I would ask you to consider some of the ways that God's word references the idea of hearing. Quite often, though ear may be mentioned and hearing may be mentioned, merely it's more than just the ability to hear sound waves. More often than not, when the Bible mentions hearing, there is an emphasis upon paying attention to what you hear and appreciating the lesson that God has in store when the folks hear His Word and hear the things that He would share. I've listed some verses that I think will readily come to your mind. In Matthew 11, verse 15, our Savior himself said, He that hath an ear to hear, let him hear. Jesus wasn't just mentioning, make sure you can hear sound waves. He was asserting to that audience to which he spoke, listen carefully to the gospel and listen to the message that's being revealed, for contained in it are the words of everlasting life. He that hath an ear to hear, let him hear. As Jesus made a statement like that one, didn't he also affirm to the churches to, that we read of in the Revelation, the seven churches of Asia, to all seven of them, when he closed the message, he said again, He which hath ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. The churches, again, were to do more than just allow the sound waves to fall upon their ears. They were to pay attention to and give heed to that which had been delivered and to that which had been spoken. Is there anything then less important about that for us today? 
Is it still true that we should pay great attention to hearing that which has been revealed? Obviously, that answer is an overwhelming yes. Some other passages, in fact, that drive those points home lead us to see some of the problems that can result when individuals fail to hear properly. Consider with me 2 Timothy 4, beginning in verse, verses 2 and following. There Paul rather pointedly said unto Timothy, Preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not give heed or will not, in fact, follow. If we, in fact, quickly notice, what's the problem? They shall have itching ears, and they shall turn their ears into fables and turn away from the truth. Notice that Paul made reference to the ear. They would have a desire, not that they couldn't hear the gospel, not that they couldn't hear the truth, but rather that they wouldn't hear it. They would choose to turn their attention somewhere else. We live in a world where that has happened far too often. God has provided His marvelously perfect will in written form that we can see it with our eye and we can hear it preached if we choose to do so. But far too often we choose to hear something else preached where someone has taken the gospel and altered it. They have taken it and added something to it or removed something from it. They've twisted it to the point that it sounds better. And the human family has gobbled it up hook, line, and sinker. And they are walking down the primrose pathway to hell in so doing. God's word can't be tampered with. If we tamper with it, we pervert it. And it loses its power. Not that the power is not in its truth, but when we follow something that's a clearly devised fable and something that isn't God's word, we aren't hearing the gospel any longer. No wonder the Lord said, Whosoever hath an ear, let him hear. Matthew 11, verse 15. When we thus allow ourselves to hear that gospel, may we have a heart that's receptive to it and not let it fall upon a deaf ear, a hear, an ear that's unattentive, a heart that's unreceptive, a heart that's not tender to respond. We thus need to be those that will obey that gospel that we hear. How wonderful we see that compliment that Paul paid to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 13. Where on that occasion he made this statement of them, When you receive the word which ye heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which effectually also worketh in you that believe. That's found in 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 13. Notice they heard something. They heard the preaching of Paul, Timothy, and others that were his companions. But when they heard that, they didn't merely consider it as the words of men. They treated it as if, in fact, it were the Word of God. When we encounter that beautiful, pristine, and pure Word of God, may we do the same. Hearing it for the loveliness that it is, and allowing those precious sound waves to excite our ear and our brain, and to quickly bring our lives into full and open compliance with it. To close our lesson tonight, having looked at both the eye and the ear, I think it fair to very quickly summarize it in words like this. As we've studied the eye, we came in a brief way to see its amazing character. The biochemistry of it is something that you and I may not be able to read and understand, all that chemistry and biology and physics, but this much we know. 
Somehow the eye allows us to read a book like this one. And there's no book any better to read than this one. And when it comes to hearing, God has made that ear to where you and I can hear. And we can decipher and learn and appreciate and understand. There's nothing better we can hear than the gospel. May we be excited to allow ourselves every opportunity possible to read it, to hear it, to be mesmerized by it, to allow it to fill our heart, and to openly live our life by it. And in that way, to be acceptable to the God who made that eye and who made that ear. Let's close our lesson with Proverbs 20, verse 12 one more time. The hearing ear and the seeing eye, the Lord hath made even both of them. Have you bent your stubborn will then to come before the God of heaven, openly allowing Jesus to wash your sins away? You can't live good enough to wash them away by yourself. It is impossible. You need to allow the Savior to do that. The plan of salvation has been given through the nature of that gospel, and let me share it with you so that you can hear it. Jesus in John 8, 24 said, Except ye believe I am he, ye shall die in your sins. We read in the text in Acts 2.38, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. They thus had to repent. Nothing less is required of us today. But in addition, we must also confess, as in fact we read in Matthew 10, verses 32 and 33. Finally, we must then be immersed, baptized for the, for the remission, for the forgiveness of sins. The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. Verse 21 of 1 Peter chapter 3. Tonight, if you haven't responded in a public way to that call of invitation, that gospel plan of salvation, let tonight be the night. The eighth day of March 2009, there will never be a better day than this one for you to become a child of God. Once you've become a child of God, perhaps that has taken place at some point in your life and you came to appreciate the glorious wonder of God's creation. Maybe you have forgotten it. You've started thinking about things that are ugly and things that are not good. You've allowed a life to be led that has in fact brought disgrace to the name of Jesus. Maybe it's brought disgrace to your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Come back to that first love this very night. We want to pray with you. We want to pray for you. God has given that as the means whereby He will hear those prayers, forgive you of those sins, and you can again stand right in His sight. Tonight, if you, need a, if you have a public need for either of those things, let it be taken care of with haste while together we stand and while we sing.